So when I was uh, when I was teaching um, in Japan, I had this kid named Keisuke uh, who loved you know English, but was really bad at it and didn't try at all. Uh, but he he loved to, he loved the class and he he liked me, but he never really worked at English. He just just he's like, hey Tom, you know that's about all he could do. Um, and one day I was talking to some of the other kids. I was like, how come Keisuke doesn't like just Put a little effort in, you know, get a little more decent. Um, I mean, he loves it, obviously. And they're like, oh, no, you don't understand. Keisuke is a farmer. I was like, no, he's a junior high school student. He's not a farmer. They're like, no, 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 uh, Keisuke's dad was a farmer. His grandfather was a farmer. His great-grandfather was a farmer. The only time they're not farming is when we're in a world war. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and, and this struck me at the time. I was very angry about this. I was like, Keisuke, don't listen to them. You don't have to be a farmer. You can be, grow up to be president of the United States one day because I believe in freedom. I'm an American. And in America, you know, you write your own ticket. You do what you want. You say, you, no one tells you what to do. You tell the world. You're free. Freedom. And as Americans, we kind of have this notion like, you know, what we're all about is like everyone gets to kind of do their own thing, right? You, you do you, I do me, and we all sort of tolerate each other as best we can. Um, and then we get into fights about it because we're like, you are not allowed to be like that, and you're not allowed to be like that. Yes, I can. I'm free. I'm a free. Well, it's just, it's, it's kind of our notion of freedom. It's what we call libertarian freedom, right? It's the freedom to do whatever you want. It's the freedom to be whoever you want to be. Now, we're in a series called You Say. And in this series, we're talking about identity in Christ. And one of the things that we've noticed is that our identity in Christ is very counter to the world and the culture's notion of, of who we are, right? So in the very first week, we, we noticed that, you know, we tend to identify ourselves by our family, right? Or by um, our citizenship as Americans. But, but the Bible identifies us primarily as children of God, right? The sons and daughters of God. God's our father, and then uh, we, we looked at uh, the idea of, of citizenship, and we, we, tend to, we tend to think of ourselves as Americans, Orange Countyans, uh, Californians, um, I said last week, Irvinians. I really like that. If you're from Irvine, you should identify as an Irvinian. I think that's cool. Um, but then we saw that actually, no, the scripture thinks of us as citizens of heaven, right? Heaven's our home, that's where we, that's where our our kingdom is, and really what we are as a church, we're a colony. We're a colony from heaven to earth. And so our interests are the interests of, of colonists. We're looking for heaven's interests to be, you know, realized here. We talked about how that plays out politically, right? Um, as Americans, we have the right to vote, and we, and we said, hey, our voting really is about protecting and advancing the interests of the church, heaven's interests, and so when we think about who we vote for and what we're voting for, it, we're, it's all about making sure that, that, that heaven's interests are being served. And then uh, last week, we talked about being a royal priesthood, right? We, we realized that we're representatives of God. We're God's representatives here on earth. And what that means is that we have a responsibility that God gives us to turn on the lights, to tell the truth about what the way the universe is to tell our story, to refuse to live by the lies that the culture demands of us, instead to stay true to who God is and what God's done. And this week, we find out 
about freedom. So uh, we're actually going to start with our text from last week, and then we're going to bounce around a little bit so you can see what this means. Uh, So 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That's kind of where we focused last week. A holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A special possession. It's an odd thing to call us, the church, God's special possession. Well, this is actually uh, Old Testament language. It's used uh, in two places, primarily Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 19. And they both kind of have the same take on what this means. And so I want us to look at Exodus and just see what it means to be God's special possession. And so look at this. Then Moses went up to God. Yahweh called him from the mountain, saying, This is what you're going to say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites. You saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, my special possession out of all the peoples, since indeed the whole earth is mine. Now, notice what God seems to think has happened here. Right? God sees that there were the people of Israel, and they were uh, in slavery. Right? They're in Egypt, and they're, like, they're, being, they're in bondage. What God did is God swooped in, lifted them up on eagles' wings, and, and, and brought them out to himself. Okay? He, he rescued them. Um, and, and the tradition kind of thinks of this as ransom or redemption language. Like, God went and paid the price, whatever that was, to get them out of hawk and to bring them and to make them his. And so now he's got some things he wants them to do, but if they do that, they're going to be his treasured possession. He bought them. He bought us. And so what God kind of wants is he wants to to take his people, the Israelites, and now we'll see in Christ us as well. And he wants to make us like that really special piece that you put on your mantle for everyone to see. And we might be a little bit, this might be odd for us to think that God owns us. Um, it wasn't odd in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they just assumed that someone owned them. Whether it's Baal or Marduk from Babylon or, you know, Caesar from Rome. It was just assumed that the gods, you know, had possession over people. And that's just your lot in life. This rubs us a little bit weird because we're not used to that sort of thinking. But that, it wouldn't have been offensive to them as it might be to us when we think about God owning us. So what makes Israel, and by extension us, a special possession? I don't know about you, but uh, (laughs) when things break... So back, back, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And and back when when I grew up, when, when something, when a toy broke, like, the, the idea was is that your father or your next-door neighbor, or somebody, you would work together to repair the broken object. That's what we, that's what we used to do. We would repair things. Um, my father, for example, he, he loved washing his car. Every Saturday, he washed his car and, and waxed it. And I hated that, but I understood what he was doing. He made me do it with him, which is why I never washed my car. Um, scarred for life. Uh, I, I understood what he was doing. He was, he, was, he was putting time and effort into maintaining this thing. So if I see, and I got a picture here of a broken toy, right? This is the difference. If, if one of my kids comes to me and says, Daddy, my car is broken. I'll say, well, 
as a responsible 21st century American in the middle class that we'll just throw it away. We'll get a new one, right? We don't, like, I, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I could, probably could figure out how to go to the hobby shop and, like, get some glue, or, but really, is it worth it? And then I'm like, well, if a good father, I should probably spend time with my children tinkering and showing them how to, to, to do stuff. That's the next slide, tinkering. And then I'm like, I'm like, but, but, what about my friends at Amazon? What about my friends at Target? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to keep them out of, did you know this, this is a true fact, uh, the price of toys since 1990, or 1980, so in 40 years, uh, the price of toys has dropped 60% due to the global marketplace, right? Because now we get our toys from places where they don't have child labor laws. And so the, the prices have just dropped dramatically. When I bought a Sega Genesis game in 1990, it was 60 bucks, or 50 bucks. Now it's 60 bucks. But $50 in 1990 and $50 now are two completely different things. The price of our, we think of goods now as disposable. We don't think of them as, as, as valuable. And why is that? Because it's easy to replace them. You think, oh, I'm better than that. No, you're not. If you get a crack on your phone, you're like, I'm going to the Verizon store. I'm going to get another two-year lease on the next iPhone 24. And it's got a better camera. You're happy that your phone broke. Because it gives you an opportunity to throw it away and get a better one. And do you notice that this mentality that we have um, has dramatically changed the way we think about our stuff? I mean, what do we really value anymore? What, what, what do we have in, in our home that we really think, man, that's the piece, that's the special piece. I, and, and the reason we do is because we haven't worked on it. Right? We haven't put the time in to, to, to keep it up and to repair it and to make it good and perfect. We haven't put in any sweat equity on our stuff anymore, and so nothing special. Did you notice the language? God said, well, I went into Egypt. I did what it took to get you out. And if you read the story, it's amazing, terrible stuff that God did and had to do. And, and I, I bore you on eagles' wings. I, made, I, I worked for you. I've put in the sweat equity, and so now I want you to be this beautiful thing. That's the first thing in your note sheets. What makes a possession special is the work you, and you can think God, puts into it. What makes a possession special is the work you put into it. Well, let's, uh, there, there's another place in the New Testament that's, uh, that, that talks about um, this, this special possession language, this, this language. I want to read it. For, uh, this is Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, this grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen to this who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own possession, eager to do what is good. And when you hear that language, redeem, redeem does not mean, uh, I mean, it, it can mean uh, when we think of like being redeemed, like made, made holy or, or changed. Um, but, but notice that, that that's 
explicit in the next line. Really, that word redemption is the same word that you use when you go to Chuck E. Cheese. We don't go to Chuck E. Cheese anymore. That place is a, that's a, that's a COVID cesspit. That, I mean, if you want to die, go to Chuck E. Cheese. Whoa. But back in the day when Chuck E. Cheese wouldn't kill you, you, you take your kids, you let them loose, um, you sit there uh, and you, you just weep as you're eating the bad pizza, looking to see how long you've got left while they're going on unlimited games. And then at some point, they come up to you, and in my experience, they give you like a whole bunch of single tickets. Not the big long lines, that would be too easy. Single tickets. They keep going on the same thing. They hit the, they hit the badger with the thing, and it gives them one ticket, and they come, they bring it to you, and they say, Daddy, I need you to, you know, I need you to redeem this so I can get um, a lollipop from the Chuck E. Cheese store. The margins that place was running must have been amazing. Because it's like 5,000 tickets, and you get a plush. And each one of those tickets, it doesn't matter, whatever. The point is, when you, go up to the, when you go up to the line and you hand them the tickets, that's redemption, right? You're redeeming the tickets. That's exactly what, what is being said here. Jesus gave himself to redeem us. He goes all the way. He's like, it's like in, 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 for, from Egypt, God did some bad things to the Egyptians, helped out uh, the people of, of Israel. But man, God didn't do more than that. In this case, God actually gives himself fully. And uses himself as a redeeming ticket to get us out of hawk. But why? Why do all that? And how does it work? I've talked about this movie before, but um, I, I think just Westerns in general, but uh, many Westerns have such rich Christian themes. Um, this movie, 310 to Yuma, is interesting. It's, uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, this, the story goes, Russell Crowe's a, a murderous outlaw, and Christian Bale is a poor farmer who's in debt. And Christian Bale uh, takes a job with, like, the Pinkertons or somebody to get Russell Crowe to the train to Yuma so you can go to jail, okay? And this is a really bad job because his, Russell Crowe's gang is on the loose and they're trying to free him. And Christian Bale needs the money. He's, his farm is, is, is in debt. He needs a, so he signs up for 200 bucks, and he's going to escort Russell Crowe despite all of the danger. All of the, Why would he do this? Why is Christian Bale, is it because he's in debt? Yeah, kind of. But really, the whole movie is not about Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. They're the reason you go to the theater because they're very good looking. But that's not what the movie's about. The movie is about William, Christian Bale's son. Early on in the film, we see that, uh, that, that William doesn't respect his dad. Christian Bale's wife has lost faith in her husband, and her son is beginning to imitate that. He's beginning to think that his dad's a coward, a weakling, that all the times that his father did the right thing, it turned out bad for them. It was a waste of time. That really, the way to live the good life is the Russell Crowe bandit life, to be to take what you want, to rob and wench and steal, to, 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 do all, to, to, to drink late into the night and then ride off with, with, with more money in the morning. That's the life. And William's starting to be attracted to that. And Christian Bale is terrified. His father's terrified. And so he, he, he does this one thing. He says, we're going to do this. And we're going to see it through. No matter what. 
And in the process, William starts to see the truth about his dad. He sees that his dad is fearless, that honor is real and it matters. And in the last scene of the movie, his father gets the bandit onto the train and is then gunned down by the bandit's gang. But when that happens, the face that we're looking at is William's. And we see in his eyes that his dad's a hero. That the legacy that he set of doing the right thing, of standing by honor, fulfilling your promises, paying your debts, do, that is going to be the life that William lives. That's the legacy he's going to share and continue. Did you see that Jesus does exactly the same thing? He comes in and he suffers torture and death, an unimaginable price to pay to get us, to make us his, to make us his treasured possession. But he's not doing it just to get us. He's doing it to make us different. Just like William's father makes the ultimate sacrifice to shift William from this life to that life, so does Jesus save us, not just to save us, but to change us. That's the next thing in your note sheets. Jesus saves us to change us. Jesus doesn't want us to stay the way we were in our sins. Instead, he wants us to look, and this is why we do communion, to remember the price we were bought at, the price that was paid to get us, so that we might become different. So how does it happen? What is the change supposed to look like? And how can we live into that? If we start to see ourselves as God's own special treasured possession What does that mean for us? Well, the letter to Titus isn't super explicit about this. Uh, We kind of have to infer it. But we can say this. Say, the grace of God has appeared. It offers salvation to all people. This grace teaches us. Okay, think about that. The grace of God instructs us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So we're going to say no to the culture, no to the way the world operates, and we're going to say what? Yes. Yes to doing what is good. Right? His own special possession, eager to do what is good. So how does that work? How does it happen where we go from? So Jesus saves us, and then Jesus puts us on a path where, where what he wants is for us to get to a place where we say no to that and yes to this. You guys ever get one of those rock tumblers? This was big, I think, and at least for me in the 80s. Uh, my next-door neighbors, I think, got one. And uh, they told me what it was. So basically, um, rocks are gross. And when you get them, they're covered in dirt and grime. But the, the theory is, beneath the surface, every rock is glorious. The question is, how do you get from the ugly, dirty rock that you pick up on the street and get to something that is beautiful. Enter the rock tumbler. Rocco, you should, you should get one of these, man. 
The thing is, I didn't, I didn't like it, buddy, because, uh, you know, when I was doing this, like, apparently it takes three to five weeks to really do it right. I'm more into, like, instant gratification. So I never, I never, I never successfully tumbled a rock. Uh, but, but here's how it works, just in case you're curious. Over the, uh, you start out with a bunch of rocks that you've found wherever you find rocks, and you cover them in, in what's called grit. It's like a material that um, makes them even more rough and sharp. And then you add some water, and you put them in this machine. It starts to s- circle like this, kind of slowly. And what happens is the rocks start bouncing into each other, right? And then what happens is the, the grit, the, because it's on the outside of the rocks, they start to chip away at each other. Right? So the rocks start getting damaged. All the sharp edges start getting cut off. And, and what ends up happening is over a long period of time, three to five weeks, uh, if you keep doing it over and over, uh, the, all of the, the sharpness, all of the, the bad detritus, all of the outside, it all just gets wiped away. And, and what was a pretty sharp, jagged deal becomes kind of like a, like a, a circular, kind of super smooth, super clean rock. But then you're not done because you don't want just a super smooth, clean rock. You want a gorgeous rock. So then what you do is the same deal. You just get all the rocks, you cover them in polish, and then you put them back in the rock tumbler. And then this time, now they're not breaking each other up because they're all smooth and round, right? Instead, what they're doing is they're, they're pushing the polish into each other, kind of like waxing a car, only they're doing it to each other. And you can take uh, something that looks like this and make it look like that. It's called Wonderstone. Yeah, so if you've got the patience and you're willing to commit long term, you've got the grit, you've got the polish, you can take those, those rocks up there on the left, you can turn them into the rocks on the right. Now, Rocco, which of those two rocks would you want to put on your mantle and show off and be like, this is my, this is my, my ro- awesome rock? Which one? Just say it. You don't know. Great. Oh, Rocco. Uh, yeah. Oh, the ones on the right. That's right, because they're gorgeous. I mean, look at those things. They got these amazing striations. They're bright. They're shiny. And what's interesting about it is the rock tumbler, it, it uses the rocks themselves, smashing against each other, to make something beautiful and, and, and gorgeous. Well, I, I think kind of implicit in the, uh, the letter to Titus and also more explicit, really, in First Peter, God has made the church to be a big rock tumbler. When we first come here, and maybe even after we've been here for a really long time, we're sharp. We've got a lot of tough edges. We've got detritus, grime, we're not much to look at. Except for Kier. Kier is a lot to look at. You're hot. But when we start banging into each other, and we're all convinced of the same truth, that, that the God of the, living, of the universe, the living God, has redeemed us by giving himself for us, And that this is supposed to condition who we are and how we live. We start. And some of the edges start to come off. And some of the grime 
gets peeled away. And we start to, to smooth out over, over a long time. This doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't. Um, not, not, none of you here are perfect. We've got a few of you who are close. Um, but, but none of you are there yet. But then, over time, not only do those sharp edges get, get cut away, all the, this is in, in Titus language, saying no to worldliness, to ungodliness, but then also we start to get bright and shiny. Because some of the good things that, that God has put into my heart rub off onto yours, and vice versa. And so not only do we start having the, the, the ability and the power to say no to the world, we start having the ability and power to say, and the desire, eagerness to say yes to doing the good. And it's because once we become children of God, God's life lives in us. But it's covered up by all this grime and hard edges and messed up stuff. And it needs to be banged away. But when that happens over a long period of time, and when people get together for a long period of time, and they, they do the, the, the God thing together as a community, over time, we start to shine. And that's the last thing in your note sheets. God tumbles us until the life, capital L, God's life within us shines. Now this has a very, very important Corollary. Is it corollary or corollary? Corollary. Is it? I think corollary sounds better. A very important corollary. And that is this. A very important thing that is also true because of it. How about that? English. Uh, Being a part of a community of faith for a long time. I don't want to say it's not optional, but it's a really bad idea. And when I say a community of faith, I don't mean like you and your 5,000 friends who show up every Sunday. I mean people who really know you and who you get to know. Because those are the rocks that start to take off the sharp edges. Those are the rocks that really make you shine. If you don't have those relationships, you don't develop those relationships, and you don't spend the time together to be banged up and tumbled, are, you really, are we really going to be able to get to that core life and really make it shine out? So what does this mean uh, for us here? I, I think um, I, there's just four things, I, I, four questions, I think, that are worth asking about, about being tumbled. Um, and, and the first I don't even have up there, but I, I think the first one is if you're not a part of a consistent community of faith, I really want to challenge you to think that through. Because I do believe that God invented the church to be a small place, relatively small place, where people bang into each other. Um, and I think that that's how what we call sanctification, holiness, happens, is it's people living and rubbing against each other. So if, if that's not something that you've done or ever or are doing now, really, I strongly implore you to, to think about that. But then assuming that you're buying in, you're like, all right, well, am I, how am I tumbling? How's it going? The first thing is Christians a lot of times are known for being, feeling guilty all the time. 
Because if we're honest, none of us are there yet, right? We're, we're kind of gross. I think we all need to start by, by looking at ourselves and saying, hey, what are some of the things that God's already done? You know, maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was last week. Maybe God's doing it right now. But what are some of those edges that you have that have already been softened and chopped off because you're being tumbled? And take joy in that. Don't get, don't get you know, beat down because you've got this one thing in your life that you just can't beat and you're feeling awful. You know, I, I, I get that. You know, sin is tough and, and saying no to the world is tough. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. But man, there's got to be some places where you have been tumbled. And those are the places that you should, you should take glory and give, give honor to God. Tell people about that. Share the ways that you've been tumbled a little bit and softened. And then once you've done that, then it's okay to be like, all right, what edges are still edges? What sharp places need to be? Once you've done the first, you can do the second. Because I think, uh, you know, for a lot of us, if we're honest, we know the things we've got to work on. And maybe the way to work on that is to be with us and be together. Number three, what good things are you eager to do? If you've been tumbled and you've been shined, there's probably something in you, a part of your life, that, that you want to go after. And that's a beautiful thing. Share that. But then you also need to think about number four, which is what good things are you not wanting to do? And if I could just make one critique of us, I've noticed that we're really, really good at partying. Like, we're awesome at it. We're, like, we're, you're all like, can we get this over with? I want to see the reptiles. The reptiles are going to be sick. And so is the tacos. And the, uh, we're awesome at this. Like, it's, it's we Harvowing today. That's one of the biggest problems with COVID. It was like, can we, can we still have fun? Like, that's what we like to do, have fun. We're good at that. And we're going to be great at it in about 10 minutes. All right? Uh, but what... But as good as we are at Harvowing and Thanksgiving feast, and we'll figure something out for Christmas, and all, as good as we are at all those things, do you think maybe we're kind of inwardly focused? Do you, think, do you think maybe we don't do a lot of missions here? Do a lot of getting out and, you know, doing the hard work, rolling up the sleeves and serving a little bit? And I take responsibility of that because I don't want to do that. I don't want to help people. Like, like, who wants to do that? Come on. I want to help me. I want to have fun. Um, but I, I, I get the sense from reading the Bible that we're sort of called to get outside of ourselves and, uh, you know, and, and go and serve in ways that are uncomfortable and difficult. And uh, I've been a little convicted about that because some of you have been coming and being like, we suck at service and we need to do missions again um, see, I did, you know, my six trips to Haiti, I was like, I'm done, tapped out. I served you, Lord. I'm finished. Haven't done a thing for 10 years. And I'm wondering if maybe over the next year or two, if we might start getting serious about getting uncomfortable 
Bill has been talking to me about maybe doing a, a little weekend in Mexico, build a house, that kind of thing. I couldn't be less interested in, in that at all. Like, there's no way. I don't want to build a house. I don't want to go to Mexico. I like America. Um, but I wonder if maybe Bill's tumbling me a little bit. I wonder if maybe some of Bill's shine is starting to wipe off. And I wonder if that's maybe not what this whole thing is about. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we long to be your special treasured possession. The beautiful gems that you put on your mantle, that you take joy in. And God, we confess that that's going to cost us. It's going to require some tumbling. It's going to require some smashing. To get at the inside, to get at the life that you've planted in our hearts, to get at the glory that you've set before us. And God, we as a community, we confess that we've still got some really sharp edges and we've really got some some good things that you have that we're not super interested in. I pray, Father, that as we bang into each other over and over and over, over, over weeks and months and years, that those sharp edges will fade away, that the polish and the shine will come through, and that we will become the treasured possession you long to show the world. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.